For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How are you? I've missed you. What's been happening? Do let me know. I'd do love to hear from you. You can find me at www.thewardrobecrisis.com. Now, very warm welcome to Series 5, which is a little different than usual. It's something I've been working on for a few months. After I took part in an Instagram takeover here in Australia called Share the Mic Now, which began in the US to amplify the work of black women and catalyse change. So here I was partnered with the Indigenous Australian social justice advocate, Belinda Duarte. And we're actually going to hear from Belinda later in this series, which is so great. She is wonderful. But it made me think, could we do something similar with the podcast? Because it's all very well to talk about representation, to talk about diversity and inclusion and allyship and active anti-racism work, but it has to move beyond talk. Okay, but podcasts are all talk, right? So what does it look like practically to do that work in the podcast format? How could we shake it up, not just to make space for different perspectives and stories, because I do think we, we do that already. Of course, there's always more work to do, but it's not like we've never covered these issues. If you look back, we were talking about fashion and race, for example, way back in episode 33 with Kimberly Jenkins, or fashion and colonialism in, I think, episode 96, if you want to give it another listen, with Sarah Ali. But this series, series five, is about stepping up a notch. It's about sharing the power of this platform. So I've invited guest interviewers to steer these conversations. Now we're going to begin with a conversation between me and the brilliant sustainable fashion activist Aja Barber, who's going to be our first guest host next week. But we wanted to set down a bit of context around what's happened in 2020 and why all of this now. Aja is the London-based American sustainable fashion writer who is focused on, as she puts it, ethics, intersectional feminism, racism and all the ways systems of power affect our buying habits you can find her on Instagram. You probably already follow her. But if you don't, she's at Aja Barber. That's spelt A-J-A-B-A-R-B-E-R. You can read her regularly and support her work through her Patreon page too. And we'll share a link in the show notes. Then for, um, I think it's about eight episodes, I'll be passing the mic. So next week, Aja will be in the interviewer's chair. She's going to be talking to Calcadon Legesse founder of Sancho's, which is an independent ethical fashion store in the UK. And then the next week, shall I tell you or not? <laughs> I wasn't sure if I should keep it a secret. All right, I'll tell you one more. So after Aja, the next guest interviewer will be the Californian intersectional environmentalist and brilliant fashion blogger Aditi Mayer, who does amazing work around decolonizing fashion and so on. I'll be popping in for these intros, but in each episode, I'll be out of the chair, there'll be guest hosts in the chair, and they're going to be a different one each week interviewing a person of their choice. We've got some incredible voices taking part, and I just know you're going to love it. I am enormously thankful to these leaders for sharing their knowledge, time and experience with us. Now, let's get to it. Here's Aja. Thank you for having me. I just can't think of anyone more awesome to help me launch this and to talk about the times that we find ourselves in. 
it's a really weird time period, isn't it? Like it's, so it's, weird. it's so hard because there's so many bad things happening, which I want to fully acknowledge, you know, COVID-19 has been just devastating for the industry, for lives, for humanity. But I like to always remember that when we have these transitions, we do have an opportunity to rebuild the things that need to be strengthened and to come back even stronger. And so that's how I choose to look at this, recognizing that it is a horrific time for so many people, but also seeing it as an opportunity to do the things better that we should have done before we went into it. If you're lucky enough to have this space to be able to think through some stuff at this moment, it's everything's pointing towards that, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So we just need to, as an industry, come back and make sure that what we do, we're doing it better. We're doing it better that we're not cutting the corners anymore, you know, that we're addressing all of these issues with garment workers, the industry, you know, pay, who gets the power, who gets the money, that sort of thing. This is an opportunity to address all of these things and it would be foolish of us not to. Last time we talked, I think it was in April, we did an Instagram live, but it feels to me like that was ages ago, just with everything that's happened, even just looking at COVID. But obviously Black Lives Matter, it should go without saying that anti-racism work is not new, but the level of scrutiny feels different, I think. Do you think this is a significant moment in terms of being an opportunity for change? And what's your take on that? I think it's a significant moment, but I feel like until the power shifts until we really start to see black, brown, indigenous people in positions of power, we can only move the dial so far. And that's what people don't realize. It's one thing to say, we need to support these voices. It's one thing to say, we need to support BIPOC people. It's another thing to have a shift in power. And I think that's what we as a society really have to sort of discuss. Like, what does that look like? You know, are we going to continue to have these conversations? Because one thing I also feel is that the world has a really short memory where it's like everybody goes, oh, this is horrible. We need to change this. And then they kind of just go back to doing things the exact same way. So how do we incorporate these conversations so that it isn't just the thing you do now, but it's the thing that's always in the room. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And I don't have all the answers for that. Maybe this is a moment to talk about pass the mic. Who would you like to pass the mic to? Garment workers, for sure. I always feel like when we are in situations in the rooms where powerful people are, there needs to be more garment workers tenfold but also more black and brown people, more trans people, more people with disabilities, more plus size people, for sure. We talk about how we want to build this fashion future that's going to include everyone. But if we're going to do that, let's actually really include everyone. What do you think pass the mic means and could mean? And does it matter? I think it totally matters. But I also think for organizations, and I think we see this a lot in like the fashion industry, people will sometimes look at diversity as a box ticking exercise. Oh, completely. Instead of a shift in power, you know, when something bad happens with a brand, like say you put a black kid in a hoodie that says coolest monkey in the jungle, everybody goes, well, that's what happens when there's no black and brown people in the room. Sometimes, there might be a black or brown person in the room 
but you haven't given them the power to the place where they feel like their job will be safe if they point out to you that, hey, you're about to make a really huge mistake. You know, I have been that black person in the room where there is something going down that isn't great. And everybody looks at you like, well, are you going to say something? But do you want to say something? Because that could be the beginning of the end for you working at that place, especially depending on how the thing you say is interpreted. And so for me, I just think it's one thing to say that we're all going to like start listening to marginalized voices. It's another thing to actually listen. And I hope that the fashion industry is at a place where people realize you have to actually listen. And not just to be damage control or limiting the PR negatives of potentially not being seen to listen. (laughs) Yes. No, you have to actually listen. You have to put the fragility aside and be prepared to hear something that might be a little bit uncomfortable, but you know what? It's not going to kill you. It's not going to kill any of us. Being uncomfortable isn't great, but you know what being uncomfortable does do? It sparks change and change doesn't come from a position where people that have always held power feel extremely comfortable with holding that power. Oh my God. Can we talk about your use of the word coddled? (laughs) I keep hearing you saying, I'm not going to coddle you. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not. And I think people expect that from me because I am a black full figured person. Like there is, especially in America, this notion that like we see it in films. We see the magical black person that's supposed to like help the white person feel better about who they are. Like that's a film trope, but it's also seen in things like Aunt Jemima syrup, which is now changing, you know, but Aunt Jemima was a slave, but she's also seen as this cuddly, sweet character who gives you yummy syrup for your pancakes, you know? So I do think that there is this notion that if a black woman who you admire exists in a space, she's there to make you feel good. And I'm not, I'm not going to always say things that make people feel good. And the reason why is because I actually like people enough to tell them the truth. You know, like we're not going to get the change that we need if I sit here and go, oh, yeah, that's great. Everything you're doing is great. Blah, 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 blah. That's not how we get that change. But when we do move the dial, what happens is we create a world that's more equitable and better for everyone. Oh, my God. Can we talk about Karen? I'm just thinking about discomfort. So, okay, full full disclosure here. I'd never heard of Karen until quite recently, and I watched a YouTube video explainer about Karen. I would find it and share a link. It's a white woman explaining it. It goes on for about 40 minutes. It's the most uncomfortable viewing you've ever had because you start off going, oh, well, how disgusting. This woman's revolting. And then after a while, you're like, do I do that? Have I done that? Have I been that person Heaven help me if I've called the manager. Have I been that person who goes into a cafe and goes, uh, I'm late. Can you give me my coffee now, please? That's part yeah. of this, the meme. It's disgusting. For those remaining unenlightened, please explain. Who's Karen? Yeah, so in America, we've definitely had this thing throughout the history of America where there is, it's tough with white women because I find white women are both oppressed and the oppressor. And that's a role that a lot of white women have a hard time grappling with. You are oppressed by the patriarchy, but because of your whiteness, you are also the oppressor to marginalize people of color. Like white women got the chance to vote before any other woman did in America. And so 
you know, white women see themselves as the oppressed. And I will give you that, you know, there's a reason why we need feminism, but there's a reason why we need intersectional feminism even more. And so with white women, Karen is a nickname that essentially came out of all of these videos we see of white women calling the police on black people for just existing, for barbecuing, for walking down the street, for bird watching. For bird watching. Yes. And it's one of those things where it's been such a large amount of these videos that we've seen on the internet that someone felt like, let's give a name to the, the person in this video. And I'm just seeing so many white women being outraged by it. And I think that comes from a place of white women always feeling like you are an individual because when you belong to the dominant culture, you have the privilege of being the individual where when you belong to a minority culture, often you are the collective. So I remember this in school. If I ever was naughty or got in trouble, you know, I would have white people, teachers, whatever, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King didn't fight for you to behave. Oh, come in this on, way. really? Literally, literally, mm. stuff like this. And so, black people always have the collective. You know, when the uprisings start and there's someone who breaks a window, it's, well, you know, if you people just behaved better. And so, I think the reason why Karen causes so much discomfort is because white women are so used to being a part of the, being individual. And Karen is a collective, and that's a very uncomfortable collective to belong to. You know, if we lived in a reverse racist world and white people couldn't walk down the street or exist without black people calling the police on them, which, let's be honest, that can result in death. And then white people started calling black people Maishas because we had all the power and the privilege and we could oppress them and harm white people with that power and privilege. The only thing I could really say to that grouping would be, oh my God, black people, we have to stop. But the problem with fragility is that instead of focusing on the collective action that has caused the nickname, I've heard a lot of white women acting like that nickname is oppressing them, when in actuality it is a collective action that's oppressing other people. And so I think... But it's asking us to take a good hard look at our behaviour as a collective and as individuals. It's asking us to look culturally at some of the things that we might do without noticing where our internal biases are, how we might just behave with a kind of horrible privileged idea that we have the right to be paid attention to or served first or listened to all of it. It's awful. But when you have the most amount of power and privilege. And I apply this to myself when talking about privilege. So when I am in the space of someone who has a disability, I have more privilege than them because I'm able-bodied. So it's my job not to internalize anything that is being said about the ways in which able-bodied people haven't been helpful and to just listen so that I can be a better able-bodied ally. That's my job. And the problem is I see way too many white women internalizing hurt feelings about Karen (laughs) instead of looking at the collective action and how calling the police on a black person can and will sometimes result in our death. And for what? Because we were bird watching. Actually, I mean, some of the stuff around Karen can be humorous, but when we unpack it, it's deeply disturbing and dangerous. Yes, absolutely. I mean, 
I have my own experiences, multiple ones. I, I wrote a post on my Patreon recently, and it was about my sister's doomed hen party. It was the worst hen party ever. The, we were tr- riding in a limo, which I hate limos. I Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> the limo driver got lost. We're in the middle of the country looking for a vineyard. He gets the car stuck in a ditch. And there is a white woman who drives up in her Lexus, doesn't roll down her window, but just stays there watching us the whole time. And I actually have a picture of her car because I'm standing outside of the limo trying to help the limo driver. And this white woman is just glaring at us from inside her car because obviously we were here to ruin her neighborhood with our blackness. You know, no, can I help you? You know, do you need anything? Are you guys okay? No, no, just get out of my neighborhood. So like that was an experience that I personally can attest to with the white women policing black and brown bodies. But aren't you experiencing an uptick in this crappy behavior? I mean, how many Karens have been threatening to call the manager on you lately on social media? Well, I just get you're the real racist all the time, which I'm just like, okay, whatever. It's this weird thing where like, it's once again, the discomfort in belonging to a collective instead of an individual. It's, It's very, very weird. I've had an uptick in following there's been a lot of great people. I would say 95% of people that follow me are wonderful. But those people that follow me just so that they can be contrarian are just like, it's just a massive headache. And like, oh, but why can't you prioritize how I feel in these posts? Because your feelings are pretty much prioritized in most parts of the world. <laughs> this is maybe one of the one spaces where your feelings will not be prioritized and you cannot handle it. So yeah, I've had a real uptick. But um, but also you make such an obvious, I think, it should be obvious point that this is your space. People don't get to come into your space and demand attention for their stuff. Also, I've always said this, when you're really busy doing your own thing, you don't have time to not mind your own business. Like I am <laughs> so busy with the stuff that I do. There are millions of people on the internet that I disagree with. I just don't have time to tell them because I'm really busy, like being powerful and like (laughs) gathering, you know, my small but powerful, like group of people to like, talk about these oppressive systems. I really don't. Sorry, I'm too busy being awesome to pick apart your complete failures over there. Like go to the Instagram with someone I don't like and be like, it's weird, right? You're horrible. And this is why if, if someone is engaging in a behavior that is harming a marginalized group, then I will say something. However, if somebody is just like, you know, has a ridiculous opinion, I can let them live because I'm too busy doing my own stuff to really argue with them about why their opinion is ridiculous, you know, but it's this thing where people seek out marginalized people that they disagree with and insist that we owe them an argument. And I don't have time for it. I'm really busy. (laughs) The thing is, there's actually so many resources out there. And often I do share these resources. I'm just not going to stop my day and be like, oh, okay. You know, like, let me give you half an hour. So let me stop my entire day and make sure that I help Susan. Like, that's not what I'm going to do. But there's so many resources. There's so many amazing black and brown voices. 
And if you support people on Patreon, you get literally resources delivered into your email box every single day. One of the books I found super helpful was Rene Edo Lodge, which is why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. It's brilliant. So, yeah. So there's just so many Layla Syed's Me and White Supremacy. Amazing. You know, Rachel Cargill has so many free resources. There's so much out there. And I think it's once again, inherent white supremacy to come to someone who is you know, doing anti-racism work and insist that they have to stop their day and help you because you need help. You know, it's just like, don't do that. You know, I don't do that when I go into the space with someone who's transgender. Like everyone goes, oh, how do you know so much about like the different sort of oppressions? Because I go into those spaces and I listen with my mouth shut and I read every comment. I read all the comments. I read the discussions, you know, and What you see on my Instagram, it is not, I just decided to write on these issues. This is cumulative of Facebook threads, Twitter threads, you know, years of conversations surrounding these topics. And so you're not going to just get it immediately. But if you hang out and you put your fragility outside the door (laughs) and you listen, you will start to get it. I guarantee you. Okay. Can we talk about when one of your IG lives went viral? Because it's been viewed more than a million times. You're actually trying to take a break from social media. Can you tell us that story? So people always say like, oh, how do you do this work that you do? And the truth is, I just have a really long memory like an elephant. (laughs) And if some brand doesn't treat a marginalized person in a nice way, I remember and I stopped buying from that brand because it's important to me. And for a long time, it was, you know, Aja Barber holding her little grudge, you know, oh, that's just Aja. But I think more people are realizing that if we want concrete change, we have to vote with our dollars. We have to say, I'm not going to support this brand anymore because I don't like how they treated this marginalized person. So like, I think it was 2017 Munro Bergdorf was the face of L'Oreal, the makeup brand. And Munro is like me. We're both very outspoken about race and oppression. Munro is a transgender model. So L'Oreal was very proud of themselves because we've got a transgender model. Look at us. We're doing the right thing. However, Munro talks about race on her Instagram and Twitter. And Munro had a conversation about white supremacy and People got so mad and L'Oreal ended up firing Monroe and ending her contract. Now, I had never heard of Monroe, but when I heard about what happened, I was like, I'm never buying L'Oreal. Basically, like I'm done. The brands that you own, I will find out and I will stop buying them as well. And I carried this in my heart for years before I had a social media platform. And I would tell any person, you know, this is why I don't buy from this brand. I don't like this. This went down. You know, Monroe didn't say anything wrong. She was just very vocal about like the issues within racism and they fired her for it. And it's really uncool. Think about all those campaigns about how inclusive and how incredible you're worth it. No. Yeah. It's the idea that you want a token to show the world how inclusive you are. But when the person actually has something to say, which will help you, you then turn around and demonize them and fire them. So this was 2017. When I started my platform, I thought about how I would 
you know, monetize. And what I realized was from watching what had happened with Monroe, I didn't really want to work with a lot of the big brands because one of the conversations we're having is about performative allyship. And from my experience in watching what had happened with Monroe, I was just like, I talk about these issues and I'm not going to weigh my income on a big brand being accepting of the fact that I talk about these issues. These are issues we need to talk about. But if it comes down to a brand getting to decide whether or not I am allowed to talk about these issues, I will not work with these brands because I see how they treat black and brown bodies when we talk about white supremacy, colonialism. These are not brand friendly topics. So I decided I wasn't going to work with the big brands. And instead, I would start a Patreon where I offer more information to my readership. And that's worked out really nicely for me. But, you know, it was a risky thing because people weren't people didn't know what Patreon was. People weren't, you know, that keen. Uh, But I basically said, I'm not going to work with any of these big brands. And because I made that decision, I think it gave my readership a certain amount of trust in the things I was saying, because they knew that if I talked about a brand, I was excited about them. And it wasn't just because they were cutting me a check behind a closed door. And so my readership really trusts me because of that. So anyways, fast forward with the recent murders of black people in the press, it spurred an action globally where everybody was saying, we can't live with this anymore. And honestly, I found all of that a bit shocking and triggering because Black Lives Matter has existed since 2013. And so it's kind of like, how many Black bodies have to lay in the street before every brand decides that they're finally going to give a shit? You know, like, so... Or that it's not dangerous territory to be talking about Black Lives Matter seven years later, but it was last year or three years ago. It's finally acceptable. It's finally acceptable and palatable, which honestly, all we're saying is please don't kill us. Like, I don't think that's a tall order. And so all these brands decided that they were going to... We stand with Black Lives, and some brands didn't even say it. Some of them would be like together forever, you know, like using the language of social justice without actually embracing the movement, which is, I think that's quite tricky and duplicitous, if I'm honest. It's like attempting to market yourself as inclusive while still not really adapting the messaging, you know. But even the black squares and that, we'll get onto that, but let's just, so what happened with L'Oreal? It was also performative. And then of course, L'Oreal decides to do the black square and when I saw that, and I I kind of knew it was coming because everybody was doing it. And I was thinking, I better not see a brand who fired a black transgender person for talking about racism do this. And sure enough, L'Oreal put up a black square. And that was when I made my video. And I didn't expect it to go viral because one, I was wearing a ratty old dress and no makeup. <laughs> like it's always those videos where you're just like, oh, I wish Damn I had more makeup today. <laughs> yeah, but it was in the news. It was in Dazed and Confused. It was in all these magazines because Monroe shared it. And as a result, L'Oreal, under a new president, they've had a changing of the guards, did come to Monroe and talk to Monroe, publicly apologize. And now Monroe is working with them as a consultant. But I made this video talking about why black and brown people do not trust these brands. Why all of this looks performative because you will literally fire a transgender model after you've used, you know, her, her being, her personhood, her identifiers to signal to the fact that you're a progressive company 
the minute she starts talking about race, you're going to oust her. And I talked about that was why my decision to not monetize my Instagram with brands was because I've seen how brands treat black and brown people the minute we say anything that is slightly uncomfortable about race. So this video went viral. It's been watched probably almost a million times. And uh, I basically laid out exactly what performative allyship looks like and why this is so toxic. It's attempting to basically profit from a movement that was started where black people were like, yo, it would be great if you'd stop killing us. And you decided that the movement was too radical, but yet now seven years later, you're putting it on your marketing while still punishing black and brown people behind the scenes. And that's what performative allyship is. You use some chilling phrases, I think, and they're obviously absolutely right, but you talk about people posting to keep the algorithm churning. You talk about capitalizing on black deaths to keep yourself relevant. Yeah. Talk about brands jumping on this. And of course, it's not everyone, but we know that some are doing that. You know, they've never thought about it before. They haven't thought about it since. But at the time, it seemed like a good thing to be on board with. It turned into an absolute look at us. We're a safe company. You can buy from us. Okay, cool. So, how many black and brown people are in your upper management? Oh, zero. Oh, okay. That sounds really safe. So let's hear from some of your black and brown employees. You've seen a bunch of like Instagram handles pop up where specifically black and brown people are talking about their experiences with certain companies and it's not good, you know? So everybody's sitting here going, oh, we're going to embrace this seven-year-old movement where, you know, hundreds of black people have died on camera. But, you know, it's been it's been seven years, so I guess we can accept it, but we'll use it on our social media. But what about, I mean, there is obviously also a lot of will to make change. We know that many individuals do want to change this. People do want to use this moment to do better, to recognise they've not done as much as they should have in the past. How can people be genuine allies and effective allies? Hire black people, pay us well, and listen to what we have to say. And not just black people, hire trans people, hire people with disabilities, and don't make your company culture one where you hire this person and you don't listen to what they have to say. Or they say the uncomfortable thing and then you fire them because you can't handle the uncomfortable thing. Be genuine in your actions. And the issue is, is that none of this feels genuine because the dial hasn't moved for a lot of these industries. The power hasn't shifted. It hasn't become an environment where black and brown people feel like they can say to their employers, hey, I'm going to tell you how you're fucking up today. You know, like that just, it just hasn't happened. And that's why it doesn't feel genuine. So when companies actually pledge to invest in this, and I don't mean in an empty way, I mean, Let's read some literature about like black and brown experiences. And some of these books are going to make you feel really uncomfortable. But let's learn about these systems that have been maintained and are in place. And then we can actually work on deconstructing these systems and making a more equitable world. But until people commit in that real way, it will always seem like a kind of empty gesture when they say, we stand with you. It's like, really? Really? I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and she said, it's about what you do when no one's looking. I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, That as well. You know, I always tell people, let me tell you about the brands that offered to send me clothing before I had 180,000 followers. Because right now everybody's like, 
Aja, I love your message. You're great. You've got a huge following. Can I send you something? <laughs> but like, I've been saying these very uncomfortable things for a very long amount of time. And certain people like uh, Mara Hoffman were like, hey, let me know if you ever need to be dressed for an event. But I wasn't always the popular choice for people. And my message hasn't changed. I just have more power now. And so when you see someone who is saying something that is necessary but uncomfortable, look at who's actually supporting them before they have the big platform. And that will tell you where the true allies are. Let's talk about power because it is all about power, isn't it? And we often, you know, when we're looking at changing these systems, it's about moving the power dynamics. It's also about the people with privilege giving up power. And let's face it, they don't want to. And even if I'm thinking about myself in my own small way, I want to. That's what Pass the Mic is about. How can I do this? But I think when the power gets bigger and bigger and bigger, when you're talking about the billionaires in charge, they're not mm-hmm. going to ask to give away power, are they? How do we deal with this whole idea of power, profit and influence? And I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you see racism, privilege and exploitation in the fashion industry as linked. Ooh, that's like the million yeah. dollar question. I'm literally that meme of Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with his like, conspiracy <laughs> blackboard. That, that's me. When I So everything is linked. When you look at... When you look at the fashion industry as a whole, we essentially have a system of colonization. Like when you look at the raw materials and resources that go into the vast majority of clothing we wear, those raw materials are usually coming from countries where they're very, very rich in materials, but very poor economically. Why are these countries that are so material rich, poor economically? Because we've set up a system of oppression, you know. We manage to extract resources and we use those resources. But not only do we use the resources, we use the labor force. And we've set up this system where countries can't even make enough money off of these resources to like get out of debt, basically. And we do all of our production overseas because, hey, guess what? If something really bad happens, like a factory collapses, you can basically say, I had nothing to do with that. I didn't know. I'm so far away. You know, so we set up this system where we use the labor force, we use the materials, we extract these things, we create a product very quickly. It gets shipped to the global north and to wealthier, non-traditionally pillaged countries. In those countries, we consume it. We go to the store. We buy something every week because, hey, it's a cheap dress. Why not get a cheap dress? And then you're pushed by the industry to continue to buy at such a fast rate. So that dress that brought you joy three months ago Maybe you want another dress because, hey, you're moving with the trends. So then you think, okay, (laughs) I'm going to donate it to charity. This is great. Yeah, I put it in a bag with a bunch of other stuff I don't want that wasn't really that well made to begin with. And then I give it to a charity. And surprise, the charity is getting these bags from everyone because everyone's participating in the system. So the charity can only sell about 10% of the clothing donations they receive. The other 90% either go into landfill, which is a huge problem, or they get shipped to a country in the global south, generally Rwanda, Kenya, Ghana. Those countries don't want 
the amount of clothing that we're shipping to them. It ruins their local market. So a local maker in those countries cannot compete with a two-cent T-shirt from America. I hate and this story. So, it's awful, isn't it? It's so awful. It's awful. But it's definitely the case. And yet people aren't really aware. I mean, they aren't. actually, in countries including Kenya, they're trying to ban the import of this junky rubbish that's Rwanda decimating. Well. Yeah. And so hopefully it'll change. But people don't know, do they? They don't want to know. They don't look hard enough into the stories behind what they wear and where the things that they consume so quickly end up when they're done. Every time one of these countries tries to ban imports from America, basically America threatens to like pull foreign aid or something. And so they end up having to take these imports. Like in Ghana, you actually have a rotting mountain of clothing in the market. Ew. It stinks. It's disgusting. It's toxic. And that's that's on us. That's our that is where your castoffs in. And so Basically, the modern fashion industry, particularly fast fashion, is a system from start to finish which craps on people of color. And it is a feminist issue because the vast majority of garment workers in the world are women. And so that's how all of this is really connected. Because when you look at who has the resources, who's being ripped off, who has the labor force, who's being ripped off, it's all black and brown bodies. And it's all connected. You and I are obviously really knee deep and wading through the mire of all this junk for years and years. Yeah. Where does it come from in you? Where does sustainable fashion, where did it start for you? I've always loved fashion. I've always wanted to know how things are made. I remember being a kid and like being obsessed with like records. And one time I thought I'm going to make a record. Which records were you, which ones? I have to know. Oh, I listened to those records in my basement with my dad. I listened to a lot of jazz with my dad. We listened to, you know, just a lot of like modern 80s stuff. Yeah, my yeah. dad got me really into Joni Mitchell, you know, yeah, Crosby, Stills and Nash, lots of like Miles Davis, John uh-huh. Coltrane, Sarah Vaughn, Ella Fitzgerald. So I was obsessed with records as a kid. And I remember thinking I wanted to make a record one time. So I like... <laughs> cut like the shape of a record out of cardboard and tried to play it on the record yes! player and so mad <laughs> that it wouldn't play and so I've always found that I have interest in the things that I'm interested in so with clothing I naturally wanted to know about how it was made I used to write to CEOs when I was in high school like I wrote um Mickey Drexel one time who used to be the no, CEO of yes <laughs> and he wrote me back did you you know so like yeah so I've, I've been always very curious about the industry and I've always sort of even though I, the vast majority of my career was in television I always wrote about fashion on the side I always blogged I always read everything I could in regards to the industry you want to know how things fa- work you're that person yes. I can see you making that you're yes. like how do records work I'm gonna try and make one <laughs> I'm gonna make one And it was the same with clothing. I went through a phase where like I tried to make dresses. They were all terrible. And what I realized was that making clothing is really hard. And if I know that it's really hard and costly and backbreaking work, how on earth are these brands able to charge this amount? And on top of that, I was also fashion blogging and blogging got very, very popular. And what I realized was that here I was buying X amount of clothing. And I noticed that I was buying more clothing than I used to. I saw that gradual change, but it wasn't just me. It was the entire world. And so if the entire world is buying clothing 
some people more than me, because even when I was a blogger, I was never that person that would buy a garment just to wear it on the blog. Like I would wear my clothing, but at the end of the season, I'd be left with a lot more clothing every season. And it just got me thinking, I'm someone who kind of thinks that they monitor this, but yet I have a lot of clothing. How is it that I'm doing this? It was the world. And that was what I was realizing that it wasn't just us. It was the entire planet that has decided that we just were overconsumption just buy. and not really even realizing not realizing it it was so subtle and so i i sort of backed away from blogging for various reasons and i started to really investigate it one summer i i volunteered at my local charity shop and i compared that to like prometheus and zeus how like prometheus has to get his guts ripped out every day by an eagle it's the same. The piles of clothing never stop. They oh never stop. You are opening bags all day, every day. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God, what have we done? What have we done? And so through all of these experiences, I really began to think, this is not good. This this is an issue. And sure enough, all of a sudden, we're all thinking, oh no, what have we done? But it it was a cumulative thing where you're looking at all of these different factors in your life and just thinking, I love fashion, but how did I become this person that has a stuffed wardrobe and nothing to wear? And how is it that we are just producing at this rate? And how do all these stores have so much stuff and they can't be selling it all? So where's it all going? And that was what led me to sustainable fashion. What led you to London, just really briefly, because I've only got one more question to ask, because you grew up where? I grew up in Reston, Virginia, but I first came to London when I was 20. My school had a work abroad program, and I found a clothing company that I loved and decided that I wanted to work with them. So I wrote them a letter. There's a theme. (laughs) And they were like, oh, this girl sounds really weird. Let's take her on. So I ended up coming to London in 2003 and having a really great experience within a small fashion label and learning about how things are made. It was an exciting time to be in shortage because it was right before things got like too hit. Um, And so I fell in love with London. And then I met my partner completely separate of all of that 15 years later. And, you know, when we kind of began to realize that we were probably going to be together, he kind of was like, well, you know, I live in the UK, and you live in DC. So like, who's going to move? And I was like, I volunteer as tribute. Um, <laughs> so I ended up moving back to London 15 years later, but it's always been the place where I have been happiest. And it's always been the place where I've been able to just connect with people. London's just, it's my city. It's where I'm very happy. That's good. I love London. I miss it. I told you I had one more question. What would you like me to be asking you? Oh, I don't know. Um, What would you like me to be asking you about? Here we go. What sort of fashion future do you want to live in? What sort of fashion world? Where do you want to see fashion go in the future? Yeah, good question. All right, then. So what is the sort of dream? So if you were had all the power and you could paint a picture of a fashion future that got the Aja tick of approval, what would it be? No more fashion billionaires. Sorry, but like the whole billionaire thing, it's gaudy. It's done. Like you don't need that amount of money. And the fact that the industry has such staggering 
wealth discrepancies means that like something is very rotten there. No more big, 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 huge monster brands, because I think when things get to be a certain level of huge, they cannot be controlled. And no matter what you say you're doing, there's something rotten happening in a corner where you don't even really realize it's happening. I want to see people really prioritize giving their money to small business. And I want to see small business gain power, not become so powerful that you have thousands of stores worldwide, but powerful enough that the companies that do have thousands of stores worldwide will feel slightly threatened by you and therefore feel... <laughs> Cumulatively, yeah, yeah, I like yeah. that. So what I want to see is I want to see power more evenly distributed and money yes. more evenly distributed throughout our industry. And when that happens, collectively, the industry will be forced to clean up its act because one thing that big brands don't like is competition. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Finally, if you'd like to support us financially, look for Wardrobe Crisis on Patreon. There's also a link in our Instagram. But for what you'd spend on a magazine each month, you can be part of the Wardrobe Crisis Patreon community, and you'll get exclusive podcast content, articles, and special access. Because I love you Because I love you